So a passage of scripture that I want to share with us today comes from uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And so this is when uh, the prophet Elijah is uh, on the run fleeing for his life. This is verse 11 of chapter 19. It says, The Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? May we come to know God better through the reading, hearing, and understanding of scripture. Amen. Well, good morning. As Jason said, my name is Amy Green, and I am just so excited to be here with you this morning and that Jason asked me to come while he is jet-lagged and to just worship, uh, but to take the opportunity to, to speak to you all today and to share a little bit about the work that I do um, and maybe how it can connect to our everyday lives. Um, as Jason mentioned, I am a deacon in the United Methodist Church, soon to be totally in the club, can't get me out. No, I'm just kidding, soon to be fully ordained um, this summer. And when, uh, during my kind of daily life, I am the chaplain for the disaster recovery ministry of the Florida United Methodist Conference. Say that five times fast. Um, And then I also serve Hyde Park United Methodist, uh, the Portico campus, which is in downtown Tampa. And I uh, participate in worship there and do small group and discipleship and things like that. Um, in my current role as a chaplain, you might think, okay, what, is that, what does that mean, kind of an everyday work? Um, we have a staff of about 50, and that includes uh, disaster case managers who work with families and individuals uh, rebuilding their homes. We have construction coordinators who put together those construction plans. We have volunteers that come in from all over the state and all over the country, really, that participate in uh, you know, mission trips, and they, they actually do the labor to rebuild the homes. And so what I do is I provide uh, spiritual and emotional care to not only my staff, but to the volunteers and then the clients we serve. So each day looks really different, um, but that's kind of what I love about it. And then, um, like I said, I also am, am at the portico. And these two roles have been such a blessing to me. Um, I get the opportunity to sit with people as they face um, some really hard things. So it is holy work, uh, but it is heavy work. And I get to sit with people as they are trying to kind of name that fear and anxiety that's come along as a storm has passed through their life in a very real way, and they are left in that aftermath. They are left sometimes with literal shambles of their lives and of their homes. So when Jason asked me to preach today, he told me that you all were in a series on fear. Is that right? Talked a little bit about what fear is. Super fun and super light, right? Like, just like what we love to talk about with like strangers and, you know, our families even. Um, But as you've probably already imagined and probably already realized, fear is not something that is known to any of us. It can crop up anywhere. 
fear of the unknown, of death, finances, and just maybe what tomorrow holds. In my line of work, the very real fear of disasters and the unknowingness of when one might strike and then what to do in the aftermath, those are some of the fears that I see. I want to start us out today by telling you a few stories. So in addition to being a pastor and a chaplain, I am also a mother of an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and I'm super good at stories. I am thankfully past the stage where we read that same book every night. You guys know what I'm talking about when they like hand you that tattered book that you've read like 75 million times and you could probably recite (laughs) in your sleep backwards and forwards. So we're past that and they're on to like some really fun stuff. So selfishly as a parent, I'm very excited that we get to read some Harry Potter and we get to kind of mix things up. Um, But all that to say, stories are a big part of my life still. And so there's two stories that I wanted to share with you today. Uh, The first one is a story about a young man named Jerry. Now, I was called to visit with Jerry's family last summer. One of my case managers called me and she said, look, Amy, this family has been through so much. They had been through Irma, but they were also facing some stressors that had to do with finances and just their family situation, and they really just needed some help, some processing and walking through that. You see, when Hurricane Irma hit, they were in a home, Jerry, his sister, his mother, and their aunt. And they had a a good-sized home. Everybody had their own room. And in the middle of the night, as the storm swirled around their home, it knocked down a big oak tree in the middle of their front lawn. Luckily, the tree didn't fall in any room where people were sleeping, and they were able to kind of usher everybody out and get out. And Jerry felt very responsible for kind of leading his family out of the home to safety. When they left the home, they actually went next door, which is where they had some family living. They had uh, Jerry's mom's sister lived over there, his aunt. And so after the storm, their house was in ruins and in tatters. Their roof was caved in. They couldn't stay there anymore. So they moved in with that family next door. And you see, Jerry, um, along with just being a really cool kid, he's also a athlete and an artist. And in his previous home, he had a room to himself where he could explore his hobbies, he drew and he painted, he loved music. And so when they moved into that home next door, he had to share a room with his sister and other family members. He went from having kind of a dream and a hope for a future, an excitement for what the next day might bring, and those dreams became crushed. You see, every morning when Jerry woke up and he got ready for school, He had to walk out of the home he was staying in and pass by his destroyed home. And so he had to relive all of those emotions from that night of the storm. He had to see his home in in disrepair. And he had a lot of almost PTSD from that, right? So he was processing all of those emotions and reliving them on a daily basis. When I spoke to Jerry, one of the fears that he shared with me was wondering if the future he had hoped for would ever come to pass. Would he ever feel normal again? Would he be able to look at his house and not see destruction? Second person I want to tell you about is a woman named Sharon. And I remember sitting with Sharon in the living room of her home, and her husband was in the next room in the bedroom sleeping, um, and her husband was um, on a a breathing ventilator. He was on... uh, additional oxygen for some health, health struggles that he had. And I sat there 
And I thought of the fear and anxiety that somebody already experiences when a loved one is going through something medically. That fear and anxiety of, are we gonna be able to pay for doctors and medicines? And add to that fear, this black mold that was creeping along their walls and along their ceilings that was affecting her husband's breath even more. It's a very real and palpable fear. And so as I sat with her in that, I was at a loss for words. A lot of times in chaplaincy, we want to be able to say the right thing, to grab the perfect scripture to say, God has this, God's gonna take care of it. But what I've learned as I've sat with people who are experiencing massive amounts of fear and anxiety is that they don't wanna hear cliches. They don't wanna hear, this was a part of God's plan. Or there's a light at the end of this tunnel or after the storm. These actually aren't very helpful to people who are hurting. More importantly, these sayings, they don't really get to the heart of what God is actually doing. They don't show us how God is actually at work. Jerry didn't need to hear cliches and Sharon didn't need to hear platitudes. But for both of them, God's faithfulness was evident as people showed up and helped repair their home. As people sat with them and heard their stories, that is how the presence of Christ was made real to them. When I reflect on both of these stories, on Sharon and Jerry, I think about that fear that they had and how it's not that different than the fear that many of us have faced. I'm guessing if you sit in this room that you have probably either experienced a hurricane or a tropical storm, or you have at least watched the news forecasts with anticipation and anxiety as the spaghetti models go this way and the European models go that way, and you've prayed, God, please let these turn away from our homes. It's a very real fear and anxiety that we've all had. We sit in that fear because we don't know what these storms might do to our lives. But I think there's something more. As we sit and we watch on the news or we read, we also read that all around the world, creation is groaning. We read of fires in Australia and of Antarctica experiencing, I think it's at 65 degrees, its highest temperature ever recorded. And we wonder, God, why is this happening? We hear the groans of creation all around us. I was reading that even though scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they've not been able to exactly conclude whether climate change will lead to more hurricanes, there is certainly a record number in the past five years. Since the 70s, there has been an exponential increase in the number of intense hurricanes. A lot of times we call them superstorms. We've had more in the past 16 years than they've had in the past 100. If you're from this area and you've, you've been through some of those, we've seen hurricanes Irma, Maria, Florence, Harvey have all come through the southern United States and Puerto Rico. And if we extend those just a few more years, we remember hurricanes Katrina and Sandy battering the East Coast. These superstorms we know are one of the devastating effects of climate change. They're not the only effect, but in my daily work, they're the things that I see the most. And I think the scariest thing and the most um, profoundly sad thing 
is the people that are affected by these storms the most are the people that were already suffering. They're people that are right on the brink of poverty or of homelessness, of losing their home for other reasons that then experience these storms and have no way to recover. Climate change and its devastations affect people who are old and young, those people that are on the margins already and already experiencing vulnerability. And so we look at that, we look at these tragedies and it's no wonder that we're fearful. Where is God in all of this fear? And what is our role as stewards of creation, as those who are tasked with carrying with this earth that God has given us, what can we do? The scripture that Jason read today is one that I often share with survivors. And I believe it has a lot for us to look at today, to talk about what our fear might be transformed into. When we come to this, these verses in 1 Kings, we find that the prophet Elijah is on the run. He is hiding from a wicked king and queen, and they have threatened his life, and so he must hide. He's escaped the wilderness, and he has left everything behind. When God asks him what he's doing, he replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. You see, Elijah can't see a future. He can't see a future for himself or for his people. And so that's when God instructs him to stand on the mountain and see and hear and feel all the worst that nature can do. He feels the great wind. He feels the earth quake beneath his feet and he smells and sees this great fire burning. But God wasn't in any of those. God is found after all in the silence and in the aftermath. What scripture teaches us is that God's voice is not in the storm or in the quake or in the fire, but afterward. It's in the voice that calls Elijah into the future, that forces him to look up, to raise his head from his own paralysis and fear, and to make a plan, not only for himself, but for the next generation. Elijah is instructed to anoint new kings. He is commanded to anoint his successor, Elisha. He names Elisha as next in line, and Elisha will go on to do twice as many things and twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elijah might not be able to see a future, but God can. God has not left Elijah, and God does not leave us. Rather, God allows Elijah to have a nap and a snack, which as a mom, I know are like the two best remedies for anything. You don't do anything when you're what? Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. So God at least acknowledges two of those and says, okay, get something to eat, get some rest. Then it's time to raise your head and take the next step into the future. If you're anything like me, when I think about the vast amount of climate change and climate crisis around the world, I can become paralyzed. I can think anything that I do is just a drop in the bucket. Is it even worth it? We can become 
we can become paralyzed and we can want to retreat. But when we do this, what we actually do is we fail to consider how God might be calling us to raise our heads, to walk towards fear, and not away from it, to plan for our children and our grandchildren and the generations that will come after that, to plan for a future that we will not see, the future of creation that began in a garden and ends in a garden city. In Jesus' ministry on earth, he talked a lot about this, and he spoke often to farmers, and so he used some of that language of the land. He talked about planting and harvest. He talked about seed and growth, and he talked about how we are instructed to take care of the earth and the animals that live on the earth. The people that were listening to Jesus, they would have understood that. They would have said, yes, I get it. I take care of my cows and my sheep. I get it, God. Just as you care for me, so I must care for this creation you have given me. This witness of the New Testament continues through Paul's letters, and we read in Romans a passage about how our fate as humans is woven with the future of creation. Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. When we read this, we begin to understand that just as creation groans, those are the same groans that our own bodies experience as we go through times of disease and struggle, of depression and loneliness, as our bodies are racked with heartache and the things that ail just human bodies. In the same way, our creation groans for redemption. We yearn for healing, just as the earth does. And so what is our response as people of faith? What do we do? In 2009, the United Methodist Council of Bishops wrote this pastoral letter. And I love the whole letter, but the first sentence is super powerful. This letter is called, God's Renewed Creation, A Call to Hope and Action. And they open the letter by saying this, we cannot help the world unless we change our way of being in it. We cannot help the world until we change our way of being in it. As we look at creation care through the lens of scripture, through what not only the Old Testament and Kings and First Kings tells us, but throughout Jesus's walk, throughout the letters of Paul and the early church, we see that our call is to be carers of this earth that we have been given. And when we do that, when we care for the earth, we participate not just in the redemption of our own selves, but also in the redemption of all creation. And so what are some ways that we can do this on a daily basis? You might be doing some of these already. You might recycle or choose to drive cars that are low on carbon emission. You might have even switched some of your containers to non-disposable ones, to reusable ones. Or maybe you garden, maybe you get your hands dirty. But we also take care of one another after some of these disasters, right? We also pick up hammers and nails and repair the literal broken homes that, other, that our loved ones have, um, have to live in and have to uh, somehow repair. As Jason mentioned, when you give each week to your local church, 
You give also part of that money to UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, which I work for. And we help people all over the world, not just in the United States, but we have a global arm, an international arm, and a domestic arm. And so part of your money goes towards helping those most vulnerable um, recover, right? It goes towards things like shelters, things like long-term recovery, where we are actually uh, rebuilding communities after a storm. So that's part of how you can help restore this creation. But there's one thing that I also want to encourage you today, a practice that some of us are really good at and others aren't. Uh, my friend Mary Kiss, who uh, is usually with you here today, is one of my case managers, and she was in an earlier service, and she said, Amy, you really like to talk about Sabbath. And I said, Mary, that's because I need to hear it, because I need to be reminded of how important it is to practice Sabbath. And so that's what I'm going to kind of leave you with today and encourage you in. Sabbath is the ancient Israelite practice of resting every seventh day. In addition to resting every seventh day, Israel was commanded to let the fields rest every seventh year to practice what we call sustainable agriculture, to give the earth a chance to breathe and to rest so that the land would actually be able to grow for future generations. I know most of us in this room probably aren't farmers, so it's kind of hard to know how this might take place today. I know that in our personal lives, what we can do are those small changes that lead to big practices of growth and of rest. You see, when we take the chance to rest, to cease from work, to disconnect from our phones and our email, to take a big, deep, and restorative breath, what we do is we actually realign ourselves. We say to ourselves and to God that we know that we are more than just our roles, more than just our job titles. We are not just bankers or teachers or doctors or cashiers, but we are God's creation. We are created in God's image to be like God who also rested. This is good practice, not just for now, but for the future. When, we, when work will end, but our lives will not. This practice of the Sabbath, whether it's practiced strictly as ancient Israel or as observant Jews do today, it's about freedom from the need to produce. It's about saying that we are more than what we do. We are who we are. Sabbath is about recognizing that we are not in a sprint or even a marathon, but we're on a journey into God's future and that we need rest along the way. To close today, I want to share with you one of my favorite poems by one of my favorite poets, Wendell Berry. The entire poem is called Manifesto, uh, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And it's a great poem. If, um, if you're a poetry nerd like me, check it out. Um, so I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but I'm going to read you a couple parts that are my favorite. And really, this is a testament to the need for Sabbath in our lives and what can come out of that. He writes, so friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Practice resurrection. I love that line about planting sequoias, because if you've ever seen a sequoia, you know that the person who planted that seed never got to see 
that 100, 200, 300 foot tree grow to fruition? So what are we doing each day? What are the acts that we are doing that are promising God's future, that are participating with God in acts of redemption, that are saying, God, that we understand that you are not just at work now, but that you are at work long into a future that we cannot even see. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge that the fear that we have around not only the storms that are literal in our lives, but also the storms that swirl around us. God, we acknowledge that we have very real fear. And God, we know that when we come to you with that fear, you remind us of a hope and a future. You remind us that you never leave us. God, that you also call us to lift our heads, call us to be brave, to step towards that fear. God, we ask that not only today, but in the weeks to come, God, that you would put in our hearts a desire to practice your Sabbath rest. God, to look at our to-do lists, to look at our fears and our anxieties, and to choose to rest anyway. God, in doing so, we trust the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. We love you, Lord, and we are thankful for the gift of your created world, God, and for our chance to participate in the redemption of it. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen.